0: Well, I've got us just about time to go. Thank you for coming out tonight. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 10 to 17. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to point out a couple of things as we read it. Starting at verse 10 of Malachi chapter 2, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now, I want to pause here for a minute because what does not show up in English, but I guarantee you it does show up in Hebrew, is that the noun youth is plural. This literally reads, the wife of your youths, and I'll explain that as we go through it. Against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit, And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your use. And there again it's plural. And I think that's significant to the interpretation. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for this good group who's come out tonight to partake of it. We would pray that you would allow your spirit to minister to our minds and hearts in this passage that's before us tonight, and we will thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Now, when Malachi was written, the temple was up and in full operation. The religious system was in full swing. The Jewish people had been back and they'd been worshiping for 70, 80 years. People were traveling to Jerusalem. They were going to the worship services. Jewish religion was bustling. But quite honestly, as God looked at it, it was all a sham. It was religious ritual and that's all it was. And God held these priests and leaders and people responsible and accountable for what they were doing and for what they were not doing. And he raised up Malachi as this messenger to go and address the problem. And God always does that. I mean, he raises up a messenger to address things concerning his own people. In the 1300s, of course, he raised up John Wycliffe. In the 1400s, he raised up John Huss. When you get to the 1500s, of course, you've got Luther and Calvin and John Knox. When you get to the 1700s, you've got George Whitfield and you have Jonathan Edwards. Then if you bump it up to the 1800s, you get D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon. If you go into the 1900s, you get C.I. Schofield and Louis Ferry Chafer and Billy Graham. And God always has messengers that he raises up to proclaim his truth. The problem is people don't want it. And many times, God's own people don't want it. And that's what Malachi was facing. I mean, God has come up with a list of charges against these people. They're questioning God's love. They didn't honor God. They didn't respect God. They were despising the name of God. They were giving defiled offerings to God. They did not realize that worship meant nothing and it should be shut down. They were weary of giving God worship and offerings. They gave God blemished offerings that they didn't want anymore. They did not reverence the Lord, they didn't stand in awe of God, they did not want true biblical instruction, they would not respond to true biblical instruction, and they corrupted the priestly covenant by not pointing people to the true ways of the Lord. In other words, this group did not walk with God. They went to worship, but they didn't walk with God. What was happening was a form of religious formalism that was not based on a serious commitment to God and his word. These leaders were following through with religious rituals. I mean, they were going every week. But the fact of the matter is, in their own private, personal lives, it was nothing more than religious charades. Their hearts were not right with the Lord, and God is proving that in this book. And he has come up with a huge list, but he's not done yet. What we see here is God's priests and people are warned If they do not take to heart the responsibility of obeying God's word, and if they persist in doing treacherous and profane things, God will curse them and not bless them. Remember this, Malachi is the last book of the minor prophets. It's the last book in our English Bibles of the Old Testament. And when this book is done, God does not speak to Israel for the next 450 years. He's done speaking to his people. So the list of things that they were continually doing here becomes part of the explanation as to why God's speaking to his own people. And the message that's given here does go beyond the priest. It goes to the people, although the priests are certainly included. But God can actually get to the place where he actually despises his own people, and he can actually bring them to the spot where he stops blessing them. And so far, Just as we've begun this book, he's given a list of 13 things these people were doing that basically was causing him to not bless them, and now he's going to add six more to the list. In this section, as I see it, there's an additional list of more things that the priests and people were doing. God considered these things to be treacherous acts of treason. And that's what I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them treacherous acts. That's what we'll allude to the subject tonight. And the text tonight, we'll call them treacherous acts. There are six of them. The first one is they were dealing treacherously with their Jewish brothers. We see that in verse 10. The text says, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against his brother? So as to profane the covenant of our fathers, Judah has dealt treacherously. Now, I want you to notice the pronouns we and us, we and us. Why have we? Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? We and us. So obviously Malachi specifically has in mind all of Israel, all the Jewish people. Israel was located to the north and you have Judah located to the south. All of Israel was in a covenant relationship with the Lord. In fact, that's how Malachi begins this. Don't we all have one God who's the father of all of us? And that concept of God being the father is a concept that was used by the prophets to refer to the special relationship that Israel had with God. No other nation could say God's our father. I mean, this was something for national Israel. It's repeated in multiple passages. I've cited different references for you in the notes where... This refers to the nation Israel and the connection, the special connection that God had to Abraham and the covenant that brought him out of Egypt. So God was their father. And Malachi's point is, don't we all have him as our father, both Judah and Israel? In fact, he mentions Judah and Israel both in verse 11. Now in the New Testament, we can also call God our father, who are believers in Jesus Christ. But the big difference between believers in the Old Testament versus believers in the New Testament is this. We who are believers today in the New Testament grace age are sons by spiritual adoption. We're not sons of God by physical Jewish pedigree. In other words, our sonship comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. Well, Israel is a very unique nation in a very unique position, a very unique relationship with God because of her physical lineage and because of her connection to Abraham. And from what I can gather here, what was happening is that there was a mistreatment of covenant members in the family of God. We saw last time in chapter 2 and verse 9 that there were cases of partiality that was being shown in instruction and application of the word of God. Apparently, some people were being treated a little better than other people. And according to verse 11, Judah from the south was not dealing right with Israel in the north and vice versa. Both of them are named there. And apparently what was happening is when some of the Jewish people from the north or south came to the temple, those in Judah were treating them with contempt and treating them treacherously. And the word treacherously is an interesting word. It's begad. And this particular word means to treat and afflict someone in a fraudulent, oppressive way. People were going to worship and there were people who were taking advantage of the people going to worship. And Malachi wanted all people to know God is the father of all the nation Israel, both Israel and Judah. And that certainly should be a motivation for treating each other with respect and not treacherously. That's what I think should be the operation of the church. People should be able to come here and be treated equally and respectfully. I mean, that is the job of the church. We're not to show partiality. All people should be welcomed here, especially if they're coming here and they want to know the truth of God and the word of God. We should welcome them with open arms, regardless of what side of the tracks they're from. And apparently that was not happening here. So there's treacherous act number one. They're dealing treacherously with their Jewish brothers. Secondly, they were profaning the sanctuary of God. We read in verse 11, and they were profaning the sanctuary of the Lord. God's people were profaning the sanctuary of the Lord, which He loved. This was a sacred place in the mind of God, the sanctuary. And the Hebrew profane halal means they were wounding the sanctuary, piercing it, destroying it to the point that God didn't consider it to be holy anymore. The people were going to this place of worship, they're taking their offerings, they're very religious. I mean, when you looked at this place, these were very religious people, and God said, I view this whole thing as a sham. You go to your church, or in this case, you're going to the sanctuary, to the temple, and I view this as phony, worthless, empty religion in a phony, worthless, empty building. There were bad things happening at the sanctuary in the mind and sight of God. There was partiality, and of course you have those offerings. I'll bring that up in a minute. The place was corrupt. There was no honesty. There was no integrity. And there's an important principle to glean from this, and that is just because a church is physically beautiful, and just because a church has people flocking to it every Sunday, And just because the church is passing offering plates does not mean that's pleasing to God. And it does not automatically mean that is something that has the blessings of God. We have churches with money-making schemes, just like it was in the temple in Jesus' day. I mean, there are churches that actually put coffee shops in the church so you can buy your coffee. They've got gymnasiums. They have tattoo parlors. There's a movement that came out, oh, I'd say about six, seven, eight years ago. There was a movement that was called Pub Churches, Pub Churches. And they communicated what they said was their pub theology, P-U-B, pub theology. And their whole idea was, let's turn the church into more like being a pub. Because when people come to church, they're uncomfortable. So let's make it out to be a bar where they're comfortable. Well, when God looks at that, they're profaning what he would have a church be. They're making mockery of the greatness and holiness and the character of the Lord. And when God looks at that, I am sure it's a stench to his nostrils, just like it was here. So they were profaning God's sanctuary. Thirdly, they were marrying the daughter of a foreign God. Verse 11 says, and they married the daughter of a foreign god. And as for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob, everyone who awakes and answers or presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. So let's just stop right there. Now, God had warned these people, and we sure saw that in the book of Deuteronomy, that you are not to intermarry. The Jewish people were not to intermarry with the foreign Gentile people, and he told them why. Because he said, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you marry outside of Israel and you marry women that are dedicated to false gods, they're going to end up pulling the sons of Israel away from God. You can write down Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4 on that point. And the daughter of a foreign god refers to women that were not committed to the God of the Bible or to the word of God. They're outside of the faith. They were women dedicated to false religion. And what was actually taking place here is that these Jewish men were going to this temple marrying women who were worshiping something other than the true God dedicated to some false foreign God. We get a good description as to what was happening from Ezra's pen in Ezra chapter 9 when he says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you are God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there's no remnant nor any who escape? That's what they were doing. Some of these people were blatantly disobeying God and marrying those who worshiped a false god. And what God says here is any man who does that is going to be cut off from me. Because someone that gets involved in a false religion and tries to bring it into Israel and bring a false religion or a false deity into Israel risks leading that whole nation way off into idolatry. So Malachi says the result of that is that this person will be cut off from God. Now, that can mean several things in the scriptures. It could mean this person will be childless until they die. It could refer to an early death at an early age. God will cut their life short. It could be complete termination of one's family lineage. You potentially will lose your inheritance of land, and there will be no survivor in the family left to worship God. It could be a loss of eternity, and it could also be human execution. All of those are real possibilities when he says, you start doing this stuff in front of God, you'll be cut off from God. Now, the New Testament application is obvious. It does not please the Lord when one of his children is unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And if you want to write down a text of scripture that substantiates that from the New Testament, write down 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16, where no believer should be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, that is not the formula for the blessings of God in either the Old or the New Testament. Which brings us to the fourth treacherous act, they were emotionally bringing unacceptable offerings to the altar. Notice verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now, this offering business must have been a major, major problem. They thought so little of God that their offerings were just polluted because he keeps bringing that up. I mean, he brought it up in chapter one, verse eight. He brought it up in chapter one, verse 13. He brought it up in chapter one, verse 14. He brings it up here in chapter two, verse 13. These people would come to the worship services, and they were all emotional, and they were weeping as if that's going to change anything. And God basically says here, I'm fed up with all this emotional stuff. You come to worship services and you weep and cry and mourn. It could be closely connected to the fact that they had, the guys had married these foreign women, I don't know, and so you have the men and the women and they're going to worship and they're all emotional, they're weeping and crying and they're carrying on. God said, that doesn't mean a thing to me. So that doesn't mean anything to me. I no longer accept your emotional nonsense. Now there is a point in which there is a sorrow that's a good sorrow that leads to repentance. I mean, there is a true biblical sorrow that is wrought by the Holy Spirit in conviction in which someone becomes really sorry and overwhelmed by their sin to the point where they want to make that right with God. Now, that is acceptable worship. In fact, that is the point of God allowing things to go haywire for a believer when they get out of fellowship with him because he wants them to get broken to the point where they come back to him. That's what David did. David was broken and he came back to the Lord and the Lord restored him. So that was a wonderful part of this. But that's not what these people were doing. These people were going to services and they were all emotional and they were all crying and weeping as if they were doing some serious business with God. And God said, that means zero, means zero to me. There are people that go to services and they do that. Boy, they're emotional when they're there. It's a big emotional trip for them. They get into the emotionalism and the sensationalism and God said, no, that's not what I want. I want my people using their minds. Notice the amount of times you keep reading in the scriptures develop sound minds. God expects his people to come to worship and use their minds in making choices and decisions that they have a heart that is right with the Lord and a heart that wants to know and obey the word of God. And that is not what was happening here. They were just all emotional. Had they gone to this place really serious about their sin, this whole list of stuff that he's already laid out in the book, had they gone there with an overwhelming sense of conviction for their sin and dealt before the Lord, their tears may have meant something. But that's not what they're doing. They're just in part, putting on another part of the show. Now, the fifth treacherous act is they were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry a foreign wife. Verses 14 to 16. Now, I pointed out in scripture reading that the noun youth in Hebrew is plural. It says, wife of your youths. And that, to me, is important to understand what was happening here. Because apparently, when you read the phrase, wife of your youth, you're talking about a woman who's been a guy's wife for a lot of years. You're talking about a woman who was at this Jewish man's side in her younger years. We could suspect from this that this woman bore his children. We can suspect from this that this woman traveled with him made a home for him. So we're not just talking about someone who just quickly was involved in a relationship. We're talking about a relationship that went on for years. And what was happening here is that these Jewish men were divorcing their wives who'd been their wives for years, and they're marrying women who were worshiping false gods. Now just imagine this. You're going to the temple... You've divorced your Jewish wife, who's been your wife for years, born your children, and you're marrying women who worship a foreign god, and then you're going into this temple as if God's going to say, this is great. God says, I hate that. I will not bless that. I will not bless that in any way. Now, when it comes to the subject of divorce, we always want to be as tender as and as tough as God's word is, and it's clear that marriage is from God. It is a passage here that does not cover all the details or biblical details of the subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is not a text that does that. I say that because there are many who quickly come to this text and say God hates divorce, which he does, but they don't work their way through the context and they don't work their way through the other 17 things that he's already mentioned in the book. Furthermore, they don't consider all the things in the word of God that God hates. And as near as I can determine, and as I've tried to catalog that, you have at least 45 specific things mentioned in the Old and the New Testament that God says, I hate. Forty-five that he hates. That is overlooked. And there are ministers who look at these words, God hates divorce, and take the position that no matter what's going on in the relationship, there should never be a divorce. And they use this as their basis, their springboard for saying God hates it, there should never be. God's word does not teach that, quite frankly. We saw that when we went through Deuteronomy chapter 24. Certainly, no divorce is the ideal for any marriage, and marriage needs to be taken very seriously, needs to be viewed as a very serious covenant relationship. But there are things that happen in real life that aren't the ideal, and there are things that happen that are sinful. And we specifically know of two clearly stated things in which divorce became a biblical possibility, and based on some other biblical principles, we would say that principially there are four things that could ultimately lead to divorce. The first one would be adultery. Jesus addressed that in Matthew 19.9. The second one could be abandonment. The Apostle Paul addressed that in 1 Corinthians 7.15 when he said, if the mate leaves, let him go. The person's not under bondage, but can be remarried in the Lord. The third one would be abuse. There are scriptures that talk about it's important that a child must be protected. It's wrong to abuse a child. So if a mate were in a situation in which their children were being abused, I don't believe God expects that person to hang in there for the rest of their lives. I don't think the scripture would support that. And the fourth one would be addiction. Addiction. If somebody gets addicted to something, we have statements of scripture that would clearly indicate you don't want to hang around that type of person. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. 2 Corinthians 3.6, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Proverbs 13.20, a companion of fools will suffer harm. So if somebody gets off in addiction, you can't just say, well, now I hope it's going to get better. I mean, you have to make some type of decision to protect yourself, and I think there are times when certainly there's nothing pleasant about a divorce, and God does hate divorce. He hates all things that brought the divorce about, but I don't think you can just use this as one little verse and say, there it is, there's the whole explanation of everything, because that doesn't work that way. In any divorce, somebody has a hard heart against God and his word. That we know. God divorced himself from Israel. In fact, right now, according to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 8, God divorced himself and has given Israel a certificate of divorcement. He hated having to do that. That was not his desire. In fact, we're learning in this book why he did it. I mean, you can see here why he said, all right, I'm done. And not only has he presently divorced himself from Israel, but she's so vile that he has now remarried a new bride called the church. And then in one of the most amazing things that's ever developed in the scriptures, after the church age is over, he's going to go back and reunite himself with that nation that did all this ugly stuff. Now, what was happening here in Malachi is that these men were divorcing their godly Jewish wives who'd been at their side for years. They had lived life with them. They bore their children. They traveled. They made a home for them. They'd been their wife for years. And these Jewish men were divorcing their godly Jewish wives, and they're marrying these godless heathen women who were non-Israeli, who worship foreign gods. And then, if that's not enough, they're going to the temple thinking, well, this is just fine. We're worshiping God. God says, I hate that. I hate that. And that's the point of the statement. They were getting involved in idolatry and idolatrous people and idolatrous women, and they were divorcing their Jewish wives who'd been at their side for years, the wife of their youth. And God said, I hate that. Which brings us to the sixth treacherous act. They were doing evil stuff and saying it was good. We read in verse 16, So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? How foolish can these people be? They have done evil in the sight of God, and they're going, well, where? How have we done evil? Well, how about the 19 things that I just listed for you? The 19 things in this book of Malachi that he's just laid out, 19 acts that you are guilty of and being against me and against my word, that's how you have done evil and that's how you've dealt treacherously with me. But these people were actually saying God delighted in them. Here they're involved in these evil things and they're actually telling people God loves us and God delights in us. We're not far from that. There are people that are living godless lifestyles. They do not worship the Lord. They could care less if they ever accurately understand any book of the Bible. They could care less if they go straight through any book of the Bible. And they're walking through life just basically saying, we're loved by God, and they're calling good evil and evil good. And God is saying to these people, you need to understand this. I get fed up. And I get to a point where I no longer speak to my people. And that is exactly what these people were doing in the book of Malachi. The reason why God has this book of Malachi in existence, as near as I can determine, is he's giving them one last chance before he stops speaking to them to get back on track. They had been guilty of the 19 things he's already mentioned in the book, And what God wanted for them was to make decisions to get back on track and do what's right. He is a wonderful God. He's a gracious God. I mean, David learned that in his own life, how wonderful and gracious God could be if they would actually want to have their hearts right with the Lord. And that's what God was after here, but this whole nation wouldn't do it, still has not done it. They couldn't do much about their past failures, but they could start obeying God's word in the present, but they still haven't done it. They still do not see the need, as of tonight, for this nation, Israel, to get into a right relationship with God. They're religious, boy. They're religious. But it's all a show. And I'm fearful that in many church situations, that's what we have. We have people that are going to church, they're putting on a good show, but it's not real in their heart. And God said, I don't accept that worship, that worship does not please me, that worship is evil. That is what is stated in this text tonight in Malachi chapter 2. Thanks for coming, good night, the Lord bless you.